from eternity past, our God has had a plan. God's plan has always been to create a holy people who would know him, who would see his glory, who would be so transformed by his presence of dwelling with them that they would respond with lives that would then reflect his character as his image bearers to the entire universe. And God called a man named Abraham to be the father of his people, a people that he would set apart from the world to be holy before him, and that by their lives they would prove that there really is a God in heaven. And these people were called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and a light to the nations. This is what God's plan was for his people. But if you've read the story in the Bible, you know what happened. They failed. Repeatedly. Failed to display his glory. Failed to be a light to the nations. Failed and failed again. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. See, Jesus is the ultimate son of of Abraham, the seed, the promised descendant of Abraham who would bless all the nations, all the families of the world. And so Jesus is true Israel. Jesus was called out of Egypt just like the nation of Israel had been called out of Egypt. Whereas the nation of Israel failed in the wilderness, even though they had bread and they had water, they failed the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus also spent 40 days in the wilderness with no water, with no bread, being tempted. Where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus succeeded in the wilderness and said no to the enemy. Everywhere that Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. He is our true high priest. He is the true light to all the nations for people from every tribe, nation, and tongue are, will one day be following Jesus. And our church is a small example of how we can have many different nationalities together loving the light of the world. And now our victorious and resurrected Savior, Jesus, has called his people, us, today, to accomplish his original plan that has not changed. It's the same plan of creating a holy people that he will live with them and they will then display his glory as his image bearers. And this is what we do. And we don't just do it on Fridays. We do it every day with how we live our lives with our families, with our coworkers, with those who don't know Jesus we display his glory. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so God is accomplishing his plan through 
the church. And so God desires that we declare that Christ is the light of the world to people of all nations. And we see them every day, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends. God wants to save them. And we get to, this is not a burden, this is a privilege, we actually get to proclaim this message of God's love and salvation through Christ alone because and precisely because we belong to Him as a holy people. So He says that you're a holy nation. So now what do you do? You proclaim the excellencies of Him who brought you out of darkness into the light. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, just very briefly. It says, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. So that's the statement. If you're in Christ Jesus, you are currently sanctified. You are holy. But the very next phrase says, you are called to be saints. So in the same sentence, he says, you are sanctified in Christ and then called to be sanctified, called to be saints, called to be holy. And so you already are holy, and yet you are called to be holy. Both in this beautiful divine tension, this mystery of called sanctification, where you are declared holy. You have the position before God right now as holy. You have his Holy Spirit, and yet we are called to progress, to grow in our actual holiness. This is not a call to fix yourself. This is not a call of self-improvement. That's not what this is. This is not self-help. This is a call to trust God enough so that He will transform your life through the power of His Spirit while you focus on Him through His Word. And so we as the church are called to reflect His character, his holiness, so that we can then accomplish this mission that he's given to us. So our call is to be a healthy church. A healthy church is one that is displaying the character of God. That's what a healthy church looks like. A healthy church is a holy church. A church that is not pursuing holiness will not be healthy. And so we must see the glory of our God who is holy, like we read early in the gathering from Isaiah's vision. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And we must see it. We must see his infinite glory. We must see it in the face of Jesus Christ so that we can then be transformed by his spirit and then reflect his holiness. And so this morning, as we continue this series on seeing God, what is he really like, we're considering, you've already figured out the theme, seeing the holiness of God. Hebrews chapter 12 will be our text for this morning. Hebrews 12, being verses 3 through 11. Hebrews 12, 3 through 11. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And, you, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the, the, 
the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Amen. Let me give you the primary truth from this text. The main idea here is that as God's children, he disciplines us so that we can share his holiness. So that's what we're seeing here. Is as God's children, he disciplines us so that we can share his holiness. Now, the word holy means set apart. That's what the definition is. And so God is completely separate, completely set apart. He's completely unique. He stands alone, separate from anything and everything that exists in the universe. So God's holiness refers to his majesty, his moral excellence or perfection. And so God has complete absence of anything dark or evil. So he is completely pure, completely whole and righteous and healthy. And so God defines holiness. So God is the standard. He reveals what holy is. And so if anything is good and holy, so if you see anything, if you identify anything that is good or holy, it is good and holy only because it is a reflection of God. And so only God is holy and everything else that exists that is holy is because he made it so and it reflects his own character. And so due to his holiness, we should see it, be so captivated by it, that we respond just in awe of worship. Author A.W. Tozer describes holiness this way. He says, we know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. And so we praise our God that he has revealed his holiness in the Bible. Our minds cannot fully comprehend. We can't, we can't get our minds around what it means that God is holy. He is infinite and we are finite. And yet, God is gracious and through his word he does reveal so that we can have an idea of what it means to be holy. It's just like if you have a couple that is holding hands and walking in the evening by, by the beach and a, a small child looks upon that couple, well, that child's not going to understand 
everything that's going on with that couple. He doesn't fully understand things like romance and commitment. That's beyond his comprehension. But that child still does understand people and love, and he does understand what it means that these two people are walking hand in hand. He understands that much better than, say, a dog who would look at that couple and would just wonder, do they have a bone? And so we, that child may not fully understand what's going on, but he's got a pretty good idea. He can relate on some level. And so that's us with God is we cannot fully comprehend what's going on with him being holy, but we do have a pretty good idea because his words revealed it. We have the spirit in us. He opens our eyes and we can see it. And so you don't, you don't need to fully understand his holiness. All you need is a glimpse. If that's all you get today, if that's all we get the rest of our lives, it's just a glance at a holy God. If you can understand that, that is all you need to be transformed. That's all it'll take. And that's been my prayer, is that as a church, that we will just get a glimpse of who our God is and how holy he is how majestic he is, and how the whole earth is filled with his glory. So as God's children, he disciplines us so that we can share his holiness. Now, I want to look at this primary truth, this main idea that has three parts to it. I'll look at it more closely, each of these three parts, so that we can then understand it better and apply it to our lives. So the first one is, what is the significance of being a child of God. So that's the first part here is as God's children. So what, what is the significance of being a child of God? Well, verses 5, verse 6, 7, and 8 that we just read a moment ago. Those four verses describe God relating to those who trust in Jesus as his children. So he is our father. And in verse 9, it calls God the father of spirits. So he's our spiritual father. And so you have this theme in this passage that we're called God's children. He's our father. And so we're called to share in his holiness. But there is a particular context and motivation. See, we're not called to be holy to earn God's favor. We're not called to be religious to do the, the steps like every religion. Islam has the, the the five pillars, and Buddhism has a ninefold noble path, and Hindus have their Gita in their writings. And and so there's all of these steps. You have to do this. You have to follow these steps. That is not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about following a path or following a template of religious duty to somehow reach God and get enough points, be good enough, or try harder, be more religious. That's not what this is at all. We're called to be holy because of the family you belong to. It's described with familial terms. And so you are already accepted. You are already loved. You already belong. You already have the last name. You already are related. You're already in. You're in the family. You belong. You're treasured. You're safe. You're loved by your Father. You see, Jesus is holy 
And so he alone could pay the price for our sins on the cross. And remember, being holy, we talked about this last week with God being the judge and justice. We deserve judgment, and yet we receive mercy because Jesus paid the price. And so now we can be forgiven. We can be made right with the judge. Now, that's a great thing. It's a great thing to be made right with the judge. But to be loved and treasured by your father? Oh, that's greater. Being loved by your father is so much greater than being made right with the judge. And you have both. You're loved. If you have repented and you are trusting in Jesus alone to save you, then your God is your father who deeply loves you cares for you, has adopted you into his family. He's given you this forever family, and you're no longer an orphan. You're no longer abandoned. You're not forgotten. You're not forsaken. You will never be alone. And so this call to share God's holiness is out of the context of you're already loved. And you desire to please your father. It's out of love. It's a relationship. Not religious duty. The message of the Bible through Jesus is radically different from every other religion under the sun. Have you ever given your life to Jesus? I don't take that for granted. Even though it's summer, most of our churches on holiday... Even so, a room of this size, I don't assume anything. Have you ever, with all of your heart, recognized that you are a sinner who deserves to go to hell, but you realize that Jesus endeared it for you on the cross? He loves you. He offers you forgiveness and joy and peace, but he offers you to be adopted into the family of God, and you can be loved by your Father. Have you ever given your life to Christ? where you're truly trusting him alone. If you've never done that, then God is not your father. You're on your own. He's still your judge, but he's not your father. But today, you can be part of the family of God. What is the significance of being a child of God? Here on the screens, if you're taking notes. What is the significance of being a child of God? Here's the answer. Being a child of God is your primary and most important identity. This is the significance of being a child of God. It's who you are. We just sung that you're a good, good father. It's who you are. So that's what God is. He's a good father. And then we sung, and I'm loved by you. It's who I am. That's our identity is that we are children of God. You see, you have many different ways that you can look in the mirror and say, who am I? Your various roles, your identities, maybe you're a husband or a wife or you're a father or a mother. You're a son or a daughter. You're a sibling. You're an employee, business owner. There's many different roles that you can have, and that can include your personality. Oh, I'm the gregarious one. Oh, I'm the quiet one. I'm the pretty one. I'm the fat one. I'm the sporty one. I'm the athletic one. I'm the muscular one. I'm the cool one. 
I'm the uncool one. I'm the geek. I'm the nerd. The list goes on of how we label ourselves with our personalities. Or we can even use success. I am successful. So then that defines who we are until we're not. And then our failures can define us, or our struggles, and, oh, I am a failure. Or we say, oh, I am depressed, or I am immoral. These are ways that we define who we are, and we ought not do that because it's not true. Fundamentally, at your core, all of these ways that we define who we are is not true. And we can even deceive ourselves and define ourselves, our roles, by even through church. Oh, I I am a good Christian. Or I'm a leader in the church. And so we even use ministry, we even use church and service to define who we are. Any way that we define who we are outside of who we are in Christ If you choose anything to define who you are, and it's not who you are in Christ as a son or daughter of the king, it will leave you paralyzed, and it will leave you disappointed. I've been there. And it's so hard as a pastor. I, I can confess this to you. It's not just me. This is a universal problem with pastors because they're up front. And, and they get the privilege of sharing the word. And so on some, here Fridays, most places it's Sunday, but here on Fridays, when, when there's a sermon that people tend to like, I get applause, I can drive home and say, oh, I love Jesus. But then on some Fridays, no one says anything to me. Or I get criticisms. And then, oh, Jesus doesn't love me anymore. It's chasing after the wind. I cannot... I cannot define my identity by what everyone thinks. I'll, I'll become paralyzed and disappointed. And it's no different for you in your various roles. If, if you're looking to your wife to fulfill you, you're going to be disappointed. Because she's human. You weren't made for her. You were made for Jesus. If you're trying to look at your children to satisfy you, they're going to disappoint you. Because they're human. Too small. Your career, name it, it will disappoint. You were made to know and enjoy God, to know Jesus and to make him known. And so your identity fundamentally at your core is not mother or father or career. No, it is Child of God. Child of God is short, or Christian is shorthand for child of God. That's what it means. When you define yourself, as I mentioned, by other things, it leads to being paralyzed or disappointed. But when we define ourselves in light of who we are in Christ as a child of God, it it does the opposite. It leaves us encouraged and empowered. We're encouraged, and we have the Spirit empowering us to live for Jesus because you have hope. Hear me. You have hope. 
no matter how hard life is, no matter how many changes you're seeing that have to happen, no matter how painful it is, no matter how uncertain it is, or how disappointing life can at times be, you are safe, and your soul can be secure in the love of your Father. When you know that you are accepted, you know you have His approval, it, it gives you hope and it gives you courage. Courage to do what? Well, courage to, to face your pain. Courage to face your sin. Courage to face your fears, your struggles. It fills us with such confidence and hope when we know that we belong to God and He's our Father. He is for us and He treats us in every way always perfect. And so do you want to grow in your personal holiness? You have to know and believe that God is your Father and that He desperately loves you. He values you, treasures you. This is where it begins. This is where we start this life of living for Him. Know your identity. You are a child of God. Second part of the main idea is that we are disciplined by God. And so as children of God, we are disciplined by God. So what is the significance of being disciplined by God? Let me read to you the first two verses again, verses 3 and 4. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So the word here, God's revealing, it's acknowledging that all of us, it says, struggle against sin. We all have struggles against sin. It says, but these struggles have, in that context, and for us today as well, it has not led to dying for our faith. It says, but Jesus endured, he suffered, and he did die so that we can be redeemed. And so remembering how Jesus suffered and died for us, it says, will help us to not grow weary or faint-hearted. And so not growing weary or faint-hearted. And so the key here to not being exhausted spiritually in the struggle against sin is remembering Jesus and what he has done. You see, sometimes I'm, I'm not different from you. I, I have my struggles, and sometimes it can be depressing and quite honestly, sometimes it can be exhausting. The fight against our sin is one that can leave us weary or faint-hearted. I've had moments where I'm on my face before God, literally, and just crying out to him, pouring out my heart, and saying, God, just change me. And yet, I'll do foolish things, I'll say foolish things, I'll have thoughts that are not glorifying to Jesus, and then I can just continue the fight, and, it, and the time has become exhausting. And we can feel weary or faint-hearted. And in those moments, how do we respond? Verses 5 and 6. And yet, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So the word there for discipline refers to a child's whole education and training. And so what it's describing here is God training, educating, correcting, growing us. And so this is a positive thing. It's not a negative thing. Sometimes we think of discipline as a bad or negative, but it's not. It's a positive thing. And so what is the significance of being disciplined by God? Here's the answer. Taking notes, it's on the screen. Is being disciplined by God is proof that he loves you. Hear me. This is in the Word. not making this up. I'm just a messenger. Being disciplined by God is proof. It's evidence that he loves you. Verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. You see, a father who refuses to discipline his child, and we've all seen it. I've been to Yaz Mall at 11 o'clock at night on a Thursday night. So, I mean, it's kind of crazy, but yeah. And there's children running around like, why aren't they in bed? But whatever. And, And you see these children oftentimes that are not disciplined and the parents are checked out and there's a nanny with with the children and there is no discipline. Unless we look to them, we have to look to us as well and do we discipline our children because our God in heaven is a father and he is a good father and so he disciplines When a parent refuses to discipline his child, that is child abuse. Refusal to to discipline really is abuse because you're setting up that child for failure in life. You You are not helping your child when you refuse to love them enough to discipline. You see, God loves us too much to leave us how we are. We read that we are legitimate children, and so therefore, God is a good, loving Father. He is going to discipline you. Hear me. If you are a child of God, He will discipline you because He loves you. He loves you too much to leave you how you are. You see, God doesn't want spoiled, whining, complaining, disobedient children. That's not how God rolls. You you belong to his family. He wants children who reflect him well because it's for your own good. He loves us too much to not discipline us. And so God disciplines you for one primary reason. Let's keep it simple. Here's the one overarching reason why God disciplines you. To draw you closer to himself. He disciplines you. He chastises, corrects, trains. He does these things to draw us closer to him. See, we are desperate for God's presence. We are so needy for God. But our problem is that we forget. We get amnesia. And so we forget how desperate and how needy we are for him. 
And so then we begin to look to other things and to our idols and doing life in our own wisdom and our own power and our own agenda. And in the meantime, we're just drifting further away from the God that we love. We're drifting away from joy and peace and hope. We're drifting, and God sees us drifting, and so he brings us back. And he uses sometimes hard circumstances. But he reminds us that we need to depend on him. He reminds us of this. Because if if he doesn't bring us back, we're going to venture further out and get into really devastating, sinful patterns. And so he, he drops us to our knees so that we will run back to him and depend on him. And so are you weary and faint hearted today? Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Because today, if, if you're going through something really hard in your life, I can't answer all the reasons why God's allowing it. I don't know. I don't have his cosmic perspective to explain to you why he's allowing it. But, but this I can tell you with absolute certainty. I can tell you this. That God is allowing that to happen in your life his glory, and for your good. That I know. He is shaping your soul. So your good, good father is making you more like himself, more holy, by putting you in a position where you can, number one, see your sin more clearly, where you can then recognize your desperate need for him, You can then draw closer to him. And then what will happen is you'll experience more of his sanctifying presence that will lead to the joy and peace that can only be found there. So as God's children, he disciplines us so we can share his holiness. Are you submitting to your father? Are you submitting to him with peace in your heart? Last section here in the main idea is so as God's children, we've discussed the significance of being a child of God. He disciplines us. We've seen why that's important. It proves that he loves you. And the third one here is so we can share his holiness. And so what is the significance of sharing the holiness of God? Let's reread the last few verses again, verses 7 through 11, to remind us. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Having to wait on God is hard. Having to trust God in the pain is hard. Having to trust God in the uncertainty is not easy. And all of these circumstances says will seem unpleasant 
Of course, it seems unpleasant. But it produces the fruit of righteousness because we've been trained by it. So God is training you. He's preparing you for what's next on this side of heaven and even on the other side when we're glorified. And he's right there with you, sustaining you, loving you, caring for you. In the middle of the chaos that is your life, he is right there with you. And he will never fail you. And so God is accomplishing your very purpose for existing. So what is the significance of of sharing the holiness of God? It's on the screen. God created you to reflect his glorious character. That's the significance of sharing God's holiness, is that he has created you to reflect his glorious character. Think back to creation, Adam and Eve. When he created them, he didn't just move on. With all the other days of creation, he created, went to the next day, went to the next day. But when he creates Adam and Eve, he stops and he talks to them. He didn't talk to the animals. He didn't talk to the stars. But he spoke to Adam and Eve. Why? Now, even though they were perfect, living in a perfect world with perfect relationship with God, Adam and Eve could not figure out on their own what their life was supposed to be about. Left to themselves, they couldn't figure out the meaning of life. You see, Adam and Eve were dependent on God. As humans were created to be dependent. See, God had to explain to Adam and Eve who they were and what they were supposed to do with their lives. God was explaining to them. He, he, he didn't need them, but God loved them and created them. And then he explained to them what their existence was all about. And so God didn't explain to them their identity and their purpose because they were sinners. He explained their identity and purpose because they were human. Remember, they weren't sinners yet. And yet God defines their identity as image bearers of his, and he defines their purpose, which is to worship him, obeying him. He's defining who they are. So they were created to glorify God, and this would lead to having joy and peace. And when we accomplish what we're created to do, just like Adam and Eve, it's the same purpose, then we will experience that joy and peace. And so you have been created, if you want to make it simple, you've been created to be a mirror. That's what you and I are. As image bearers of God, we exist to reflect the glory of God. This is what we do. And so when our thoughts and our words and our desires, our actions when all of that reflects the character of God, then we are worshiping him because our lives are marked by what God is like, which God is holy and he is love and he is truth and goodness and mercy and beauty are God's characteristics. When our lives reflect that, we are properly imaging God, we're reflecting him and this is a life 
of worship. Now, every human being images God. Every human being is made in God's image. Even those that are lost, who hate God, reject Jesus, and are living very unholy lives, even they are still reflecting the glory of God. Now, not very well. They're a broken mirror. You can still kind of see God's image in them and how they live, but it's, it's tarnished and it's not a very good reflection, but they still have God's image. Every human being does. And so when someone repents and trusts in Jesus, they're regenerated, they are born again of the Spirit, they receive His Spirit, who then begins to transform our lives, we become more holy, and so this broken mirror becomes a little bit more healed, a little bit more repaired. And so that's what God does in regeneration is he makes us whole. So we can then reflect his glory more and more. And so we're all broken mirrors and need to be restored. And so coming to faith in Christ is the first step. But even after you do, there's still more healing, more restoring, more growing that has to happen until God calls us home. And so God's discipline is part of the process. We experience the Spirit's healing and restoring work so that we can then reflect Him more clearly. So what do we do? How does, how does this work practically? You keep pouring out your hearts to God. You keep looking to Jesus. You keep trusting Him. You keep drawing near to Him through reading the Word and and through prayer and communion with him. And then when we're living like this, and I would say this, in community, with accountability, with your brothers and sisters, when we're following Jesus in community, the Spirit of God is active and he heals and restores and changes us. And then we reflect his glory, which is holy more. There is beauty in your pain. Do you see? Can you see it? There is. Are you living your life under the face of God? By that I mean with the awareness like we sung. May we be more aware of your presence. Do we live with this constant awareness that he is near? Because he is. Have you settled for a mediocre life of following Jesus where there's just little passion for him. How do you relate to fellow believers? Because they're your brothers and your sisters. And so if we would relate to each other as brothers and sisters for real, we would have an incredibly healthy church where we wouldn't be able to have enough chairs in this hall because of the overflowing love and affection and encouragement that people would feel when they walked in. They wouldn't want to leave. We need to treat each other as fellow image bearers. Now, as I close, one last thought that I, I wasn't talking about this, but it's on my mind. And this is a long conversation. Maybe we can have over coffee, one at a time, not all at once, obviously. But if you're married, let me give you some brief advice. Treat your husband or your wife first, hear me, first as an image bearer and as a sister or a brother. Because your wife is not your wife first and foremost. She's not yours. She belongs to God. 
and your wife is your sister, and she's an image bearer, first, she's your wife, second. Your husband is your brother, first. And he bears God's image, and is worthy of respect and honor, period. And so we must see our spouses as who they are, as image bearers who are children of God. And when we see our wives and our husbands in the proper light, it would change how we see them from existing to please us, existing to meet my needs as we define them. A lot of times our needs are just wants anyway, but, but I digress. We will stop seeing them as existing for us, and we will see them as existing for the glory of God, and we will see much more value in our spouse. We will treasure our spouse. We will not be demanding or suffocating our spouse, but we will just love them and serve them because it pleases your Father in heaven. And so may we see each other as image bearers and children of God. It will revolutionize your marriage. I promise. It's in the Word. God never fails. My prayer is that we'll be a church that is healthy, that is reflecting the character of God, a church that is holy, that is imaging, reflecting the holiness of God. Only He can do this. This is His work. But He accomplishes it when we follow Jesus together. So may we truly lock our arms and knit our hearts together and encourage one another. Do this together, displaying the glory of our God to Abu Dhabi and to the nations. Will you pray with me? Father, we are in awe of who you are, that you are holy. And we confess, we readily admit that we are not. We are so broken and so needy. I pray that you would transform us, that we would be so captivated by your holiness, that your spirit would be so active that you would transform us to reflect your character. For we know for us to accomplish this mission you've given to us to make disciples is only possible when we are following you focusing on you, Jesus. We pray for your empowering, for we need you, and we yearn for you, and we thank you that we have you, and we pray in the name of our King Jesus.